everybody, and I want to encourage you to continue to share uh, in this series uh, your good news with us in the uh, seat backs in front of you. There should be some cards nearby, and a lot of you have been doing this. It's really been encouraging to our body to hear good news in your life. Um, some people, you know, kind of quantify it and say, well, it's not that big a deal, and it's only good news to me, but the truth is, uh, in the community that we're in, uh, good news to you is good news to everybody. So take a moment, fill it out. Maybe it's about your family, maybe about your business, maybe about your job, whatever. And turn those in because you'll see them in the bulletin. You'll see them on e-updates. You'll see them and hear about them in the service. So uh, continue to turn those in. And we've been in this series, Good News, for a few weeks now. Uh, as you know, based on the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been following along, you probably know by now that several times in this Gospel of Mark, Jesus is clashing with the religious leaders of his day. Uh, he's doing things and saying things that really angered and frustrated a lot of people. People like the Pharisees, teachers of the law. So when we arrive at Mark chapter 7, the groundwork has been laid for an epic confrontation. We're going to look today at that interaction because in it, Jesus leads us to one of the most important things that he ever taught about spirituality. Things in chapter 7 start off innocently enough when the Pharisees come and they complain to Jesus that his disciples are not quite pious enough. Apparently, the disciples are eating food without washing their hands. I know that's pretty disgusting, right? But it was inappropriate to the Pharisees because it violated the tradition of the elders. So Jesus kind of passage from the book of Isaiah. And then he tells the leaders, he says, that they have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then he kind of kicks it up a notch and Jesus tells the religious leaders, in fact, you guys like to play games with the law. I want to show you just how much Jesus really knew the law because he specifically refers to something here. And I think this is really kind of a cool thing. Jesus gives the proof of their corruption of the law by citing something known as Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. It's only mentioned one time in all of Scripture, and it's here in Mark 7. Uh, Moses, of course, had instructed God's people as part of the Ten Commandments. One of the things that God said was, honor your mother and father. But the Pharisees had kind of found a little end around from this. They had a teaching called Corban, where they could give money to the temple in lieu of helping their parents when they got older. Whatever money that they would have used to provide for aging parents could actually be dedicated to the treasury of the temple. They called it Corban. And it would exempt a person from his responsibility to take care of his aging parents. In other words, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, took a legitimate offering, used it in an illegitimate and devious way to defraud their parents and enrich themselves because they, of course, were benefiting from the treasury. Jesus says, by doing so, you have nullified God's law. You have misused Corban as an evil rationale to avoid doing what you know you should be doing. You should be honoring your mother and father, taking them all the way to the end of their journey. 
And at this point, Jesus turns and he looks at them and he says something so powerful that it really rocks his disciples' world as well. Here's the spiritual truth. We're just going to read it together in Mark 7. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Jesus said, Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For if it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Can we all say amen to that? Yeah. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by talking about matters of the heart. This could be one of the most important teachings of Jesus in the entire Gospels. And it's extremely good news for us today because it really tells us what matters to God and really what makes us right with God. According to Jesus, it is not the stuff we consume or partake of through our mouth that defiles us. It's the stuff that comes from within. That stuff that has the potential to not only hurt us, but to destroy other people. Jesus gives a very parallel teaching about this over in Luke's gospel. Luke kind of records it this way, uh, a similar type teaching, not the same teaching as before, but a similar type. When Jesus is speaking one time and he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus starts here with a point that is so simply profound that people often miss it. Let me ask you a question. What kind of fruit does a fig tree produce? Figs, right. Pretty simple. What Jesus is getting at here is what we might call the law of the tree. And here's what it means. What's going on inside the tree determines what gets produced outside the tree. Let me say it again. What's going on inside the tree determines what gets produced outside the tree. I want to tell you how this applies to you and me based on what Jesus said. Inside of us, there is a constant flow or stream of thoughts and feelings going on all the time. Every human being in the world has them. I want you to just kind of picture that I'm holding a wire or a string here in my hand. And on this string or on this wire are a bunch of little beads and every bead, every single bead on this wire is a thought. Now, you know this, that every single feeling is associated with a thought. All the time, there is a stream of thoughts going on inside of our mind. 
thoughts and feelings. For example, right now, for some of you sitting in this room, here's how your mind is working. You're thinking about, well, I wonder what Jesus did mean when he said that in Mark's gospel. And as you're having that thought, you glance down at your hands and you think, oh my goodness, look at my nails. I'm still biting them. That's such a horrible habit. I wish I didn't do that. It's kind of embarrassing for people to see my nails all chewed up. You know, I did that at work because I'm so mad at my boss right now. That man, I tell you, he, he just frustrates me to no end. One day I'm going to tell that guy off. I can't wait to that day. Hey, there's a couple sitting in front of me and they're holding hands. Why doesn't my spouse hold my hand anymore? They look so much happier than us. I bet their marriage is a lot better than mine. That guy on the stage is still talking up there. He will not shut up. What is going on? Okay? That, that's, that is your mind. You're having a series of thoughts. They're going on all the time. Sometimes it feels like they're not. Some days you may feel like you went through the whole day and didn't really have a good thought. But in reality, your mind is never still. And the inside of the tree is never still. You're having thoughts, observations, perceptions, and ideas at a staggering rate. Such, listen, to be honest, you won't even remember a vast majority of them. And this starts to get to the point that Jesus wanted to make. Your thoughts and your feelings, friends, take on certain patterns, certain tendencies that inevitably determine the fruit that you bear. The kinds of things that you say or that you do. For example, we describe people and we give them labels or adjectives. When we do that, we're just describing the patterns of thoughts and feelings that flow inside the tree. Loving people are simply the kind of people who have lots of loving thoughts and feelings. Cranky people are just people who tend to have bitter, resentment-producing thoughts and feelings. We all have these characteristics, these patterns and habits. For example, someone will come up to you and say, boy, you look terrific today. An optimist will think, what a friendly guy. A narcissist will think, I was just thinking the same thing. Tell me more. A pessimist will think, the lighting in here must be really, really bad. And a cynic will think, you're probably recruiting me to work in children's ministry. See, we use names that we use to describe people's personality or character. We'll say something like a person is an introvert or this person is brave or this person is talkative. And these names really just simply refer to the specific patterns that tend to run in that person's mind. And that flow determines your identity, your character, your personality. It determines the way you experience reality. Listen, the inner flow of your mind is your life for better or for worse. And it's going on inside of you all the time, even when you don't notice it or remember it. And Jesus is saying as clearly as he can here that the patterns and characteristics of this flow, listen, not your circumstances, not your situation in your life, determines the kind of existence that you will experience. Many of you know this, but over the last 30, 40 years, so many studies have demonstrated this, that the single most dominant movement in American psychology has come to be known as cognitive psychology. It's built around the idea that the way you think is the most important thing about you. 
It determines your attitude, your emotions. It governs your behavior. It has a lot of influence. In fact, scientists now are discovering that it even has um, a vulnerability to illness in your life is due to some of the things you think. The inside of the tree, the flow of thoughts and feelings, is what determines your life. Therefore, Jesus says, the inside of the tree is what must be changed by God if a person is going to be transformed. Does that make sense? Now, this is where there was a major conflict, a huge difference between Jesus and a lot of religious leaders in his day who focused mostly on behavior. And let me say that this is what the church has done for the last 100 to 200 years. Jesus has this brilliant insight, and he says, if you only aim at doing what's right and avoiding what's wrong, it is a setup for failure. I'm going to say that again. If you only aim at doing what's right and avoiding what's wrong, it is a setup for failure. Why? Because you must aim at becoming the right kind of person who wants to do right things. Why? Because they make sense to you. Because you see them as good and as wholesome and as attractive. You genuinely don't want to do wrong things because they are unappealing and they are sad. The focus is on the inside of the tree. And Jesus' focus is not that you be filled with feelings of resentment, hostility, bitterness, and so on, and just learn how to squelch them. His target thank God, is to transform the inside of the tree. So Jesus says, let me tell you about another law. Not only is there the law of the tree, but he says there's also the law of exposure. He says good people store up good things inside, and other people store up evil things. We're storing up, friends, every day in our life, good or bad, true or false, noble or demeaning. And here's the deal. Your mind and my mind will think about most whatever we put in it. Whatever we think about most, whatever we most expose it to, that is what we're going to think about. What repeatedly enters your mind, occupies it, over time will fill it. And then it is expressed in what you do. For example, in NASCAR, I'm not a big NASCAR person, but I know that they don't take a high-performance car and put in low-octane gasoline. Instead, when people buy a really expensive car, they put in expensive gas. No athlete I know of who has become an Olympian has ever gone on a Twinkie and chocolate diet. Think about your kids, how careful you are about what goes into that child, especially the first child. There's an old story that kind of illustrates this whole thing. Mom has a baby and the pacifier falls out of the first kid's mouth and the mom picks it up and puts it in a pot of boiling water, sterilizes it, pulls it out with tongs, waves it around to air dry it before inserting it back into the child's mouth. Second kid comes along, pacifier falls out, mom runs, puts it under some cold tap water, dries it off with a dish towel, gives it back. Third kid drops the pacifier. Mom comes along, picks it up, spits on it, rubs it off, and sticks it back in the kid's mouth. No big deal. As a general rule, we're quite careful about what we put into something that's valuable to us. We know that we put in 
or what we put in determines the performance. And that's why it's kind of crazy that when it comes to this thing of law of exposure, of mental storage, we just kind of have a casual, nonchalant attitude. Think of the law of exposure like the law of gravity. No one is surprised by the law of gravity. Nobody steps off a 10-foot ledge and says, what were the odds of that happening? The law of exposure works the exact same way. People act in our society like it's a shock. For example, if you're a woman in our society, you have to look a certain way. You might have to be incredibly slender to be attractive. And we raise a generation of young women who are bombarded by this message and they grow up thinking, I've got to starve myself or I've got to do certain things to make myself look beautiful or valuable. And we wonder years later, how in the world did that happen? It's what we've been exposed to. The events you attend, the materials you read, don't read, the music you hear, don't hear, the images you watch, the conversations you hold, the daydreams you entertain. Those are little beads running across the wire. And here's the great thing about Jesus, and this is so important to notice. None of Jesus' statements are commands. Jesus is not barking out orders. This is one of the great things about Jesus as a teacher. Jesus is simply saying, this is how life works. A certain kind of fruit comes from a certain kind of tree. If you store up this, this is what you'll get. He just observes. That's why he's so great as a teacher. He's just saying, here's the way it works. And then you get to decide what you want to do with this. What you do or what you uh, always do depends on the kind of tree you want to be. So for these last few moments, what I want to do is just kind of walk through kind of what Scripture says are three options that you can have. There are kind of like three minds or mindsets, if you will, that you can have and you can cultivate if you want to produce a certain kind of tree. We'll run through these kind of quickly here. The first option is what Scripture calls the sinful mind. If your goal is debauchery, lechery, and depravity, sounds like a law firm, doesn't it? <laughs> debauchery, lechery, and depravity. The good news is if you want to cultivate that kind of mind, Jesus said it's not hard at all. Just be careful what you put or don't put in your mind. We always think of sin as action, as behavior. But actions don't start as actions. They always start as thoughts. This is why one of the most brilliant analysis of the kind of mind uh, that we're talking about here was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. He says this, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death. Sinful nature is hostile to God, so there's a certain kind of mindset. Here's the way it works. You go through your day and you see somebody and you think, man, that person is so successful, so much more successful than I am. And it kind of makes you feel bad. So secretly in your heart, in your thought life, you hope something bad happens to them. If they fail at something, I'll feel better. Guys, there's a girl walking in front of us. 
And our thoughts are, I wonder if she's attractive enough that when I get a chance to see her, I'll get a little jolt of sexual gratification just by looking at her. The guy driving next to me has a more expensive car than I do. He must be one greedy guy. Oh, the guy driving next to me has a piece of junk for a car. He must be pretty low functioning. I'm late for a meeting. The truth is, I didn't allow enough time to get there, but I'll just tell everybody I'm late because traffic is bad. And you just kind of spin the truth. Do you understand what I'm talking about? These are the kind of thoughts, these are the kind of mind thoughts, the moods that will dominate your life. And if this happens, you will be dominated by resentment, unresolved anger, anxiety, chronic fear, and unsatisfied desire. These are the moods that will dominate a mind from which God has been excluded. And the key to this, the key to this is found in Psalms. In their pride, the wicked do not seek him in all their thoughts. In all their thoughts, there is no room for God. So here's what you do. Just avoid any contact that would disrupt this flow of negative thoughts. Avoid positive, wise, honest people who will love you and speak the truth to you. Avoid the teaching of God's word at all costs. Avoid honest self-examination. Avoid contact with anybody or anything that will move you to compassion and tenderness. If you just drift in our culture, these are the ways that you'll find yourself thinking. For example, you know what the number one leisure activity is in our society in America? The number one leisure activity is watching television. If this is the primary thing you do, nothing wrong with watching television. This isn't one of those anti-TV churches, okay? It's going to fill your mind with certain thoughts. Let's be honest. There's a fascinating book by a guy named Robert Putnam. It's called Bowling Alone. It's like a definitive study of our culture over the last 20 years or so. And one of the things that Putnam and his team does is they cite numerous studies that chart what type of fruit is produced by chronic TV watching. In other words, he studied the correlation of people's behavior with whether or not they say that, teach, uh, that watching TV is my primary form of entertainment. So, in other words, when they had time on their own, the primary mental storage activity they engaged in was TV. Putnam found out that the statement, that statement, I watch TV as my primary for, uh, form of entertainment, is the number one predictor of whether or not somebody is likely to be involved in community or civic life. For example, one of the studies asked, how likely is someone to become involved in church? People who say TV is my primary leisure activity are unlikely to be involved in worshiping and learning and giving and serving in a community of faith. Now, the good news is you're here, so that doesn't apply to any of you. The second question asked was, how likely is someone to work on a community project? And people, again, who say TV is my main form of entertainment are less likely to give themselves to community service and helping the poor. What are you doing to feed your mind? Putnam says that's the question that you can ask. So many people, they just don't take seriously the inside of the tree. That's one thought, one mind. Option number one. But then there's option number two, and this one is brutal. Option two is what Scripture calls the double-minded mind. 
And here, if your goal is to be a half-hearted Christ follower, then you do what I kind of call the half-and-half half deal. The Bible talks about this in the book of James. It says there's a description of people who are double-minded. Part of them is pulled in a God direction, and part of them is not. And the reason I say that this one is brutal is this puts people in such a position that it's the worst of both worlds. Because on one hand, you live with this kind of low-level, hidden, chronic debauchery. So you look around and you're frustrated by all the fun that the major league debauchery professionals are having. <laughs> all the partiers are having more fun than you are. But you maintain just enough spiritual input so that you still have this chronic, like, low-level guilt about the amount of depravity that you still are able to maintain. This double-mindedness is brutal. Mostly in this life, you fill your mind with things that everybody else fills their minds with. Again, a very sad way to live, but there is a third option. And the third option is what Scripture calls the transformed mind. Paul puts it like this. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. This is a mind where God the Father is always present. And he constantly, constantly and gradually crowds out foolish ideas and misguided intentions. I love the way Dallas Word puts this. He says, what does a mind transformed by God look like? He says, it is the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we allow or require our minds to dwell on. This is the ultimate freedom that not even a concentration camp, not even a loaded gun can take away this from any human being. This is the core of the core of what it means to be a spiritual being. This is why Paul gives us the command. Paul says, set your mind on things what? Above, not on earthly things. I used to get a little confused about this above earthly things things. I used to think it was about picturing like, what is heaven going to be like one day when we die? Think about this. How do you picture God in your mind? Just turn to somebody and say, beard or no beard? Be honest. Beard or no beard? Well, the correct answer is, of course, God is spirit. So the beard thing is something that we just kind of add on. How about this one? How do you picture God? Dressed in a robe or a pinstripe suit? Be honest. How do you picture God? The correct answer is what? God is spirit. We just kind of add the robe thing on kind of as an add-on. How about this one? How do you picture God's hair color? Blonde, brown, black, redhead, or white? What do you think? Well, the correct answer is brown. <laughs> no, the correct answer is God is spirit. We just kind of add the hair color thing on. What I'm saying is, Paul is not saying in this verse, try and picture what things look like in heaven and don't pay much attention to nature or earth or so on. What he's saying is things above is a way of talking about the kingdom of heaven and things below is talking about the kingdom of this earth. He's talking about a, a sphere where God holds un, unhindered sway over. He says what... Uh, Paul is trying to say is let your mind be characterized by thoughts that produce love and joy and peace and confidence and courage and self-control and poise and maturity. He said, and don't let your mind be enslaved to things like resentment and anxiety and greed. 
You say, how do you do this? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind. It's a story of a brilliant guy, a guy who was given this fabulous mind, especially as a mathematician. His name was John Nash. But John Nash uh, heard voices in his mind. He had thoughts that were not true, were not rational, and were deceitful. They seemed real to him. They, they made him feel important. They played on his darkest fear. But every time he listened to them, they destroyed his relationship and they distorted his perception of life. He became obsessive, terrified, and it would lead to death in his life. So this brilliant guy with this fabulous mind had to learn, and this took a lot of time. He had to learn how to test the voices, to test the thoughts in his mind. And he had to learn how not to listen to the ones that led to death. And there's a great scene in this movie, if you've ever seen it, and it expresses this thought so well. A colleague of John Nash asked him about how it's going in dealing with the voices. I love his answer. He says, I've gotten used to ignoring them. And as a result, I think they've given up on me. I've gotten used to ignoring them. And as a result, I think they've given up on me. See, this is the battle inside all of us. You will be able to recognize God's transformation because increasingly the moods that will dominate your life will be love instead of resentment and peace instead of chronic anxiety and joy and gratitude instead of continued unsatisfied desire. So here's what happens. You face an emergency and your first response, your first response is to expect God is with me. I don't have to be bigger or smarter than I am. And you get this flood of peace in your heart. Somebody comes along and praises you or compliments you. And your first thought is to think, oh, they're right. <laughs> your first thought is, you know, what a good God God is. How God blesses me and helps me. And you have this sense of joy. And then somebody comes along and they condemn you or they criticize you. And suddenly you remember that God loves you. So you don't have to fight back or appease them or do something to get even. You don't have to blast them. You just love them back because, listen, you're living in love. And this new mind, friends, is absolutely the key to spiritual transformation. This is why Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern in this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He did not say the changing of your behavior. So how do you do this? Real simple as we close. First thing is you go into the mental storage business. Paul says, whatever things are true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. What kind of mind would that be? The gold standard for mental storage is the scriptures. Here's what you can do. You can just take one thought, one thought from scripture... Maybe it's something you struggle with like anger or fear or anxiety. Just take one thought and let it stay with you all day long. Maybe all week long. Maybe all month long. We're going to do it right now. We're going to have a little run through. There's a fabulous statement from Psalms chapter 16. I want you to look at it on the screen. And we're just going to say this together. Everybody read it with me together. Here we go. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will say it again, everybody together. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, without looking at the screen, okay, turn to somebody next to you and say that scripture, okay? And if you need to peek just a little bit, you can, all right? Because I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now think about this. What does it mean? What would it mean if you just meditated on that scripture? You know, meditate is a word that scares Christians to death. They say, isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that kind of like an Eastern thing? I mean, don't the Buddhists meditate? Dallas says, yes, they do, but they also eat breakfast. <laughs> Still a good idea. Scripture has tons to say about meditating. The very first psalm, the psalmist says, people who love God delight in God's word and God's law, and they meditate on it day and night. Let me ask you, how many of you in this room know how to worry? Anybody know how to worry? Let me give you some good news. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Really. Meditating is just, in a sense, a form of positive worry. That's what it is. You just allow that thought to come back to your mind over and over again. You begin to think, I have set the Lord always before me. And one of the reasons that we have a hard time doing that is because we live in a world that vies for our attention. That vies for our affection. That vies for our thoughts. Let me, let, me, let me kind of walk you through this. I want you to understand how you really can set the Lord before you. If you don't mind, just close your eyes for a moment, okay? We're not going to hum or anything. We're just going to close our eyes, all right? I just want you to get focused so you don't get distracted by anyone else. I want you to think about what it would look like if you set the Lord before you this week. All right? Eyes closed. What would it look like if you woke up first thing tomorrow morning, instead of being overwhelmed by how much you had to do, or worried about something ahead of you that day, what if you got out of bed and the first thought you had was, I know God is right here with me now. And so you took a shower and you got out of the shower and instead of looking in the mirror and thinking I'm fat or I'm too skinny or I'm too old or I'm too wrinkled, you thought, thanks God for giving me life another day. And what if you greeted people the first thing in that day, how would you greet them? If God was right there with you, what kind of things would you say to people when you greeted them tomorrow morning? And then when you went to work, whether at home or at business, maybe something bad happens, somebody challenges you, or a project doesn't go well, or a customer gets upset with you, or you have financial trouble, but the Lord is at your right hand, and therefore you are not shaken. And then you get in your car, maybe for lunch, you're going to go somewhere. And although traffic is terrible and crazy drivers are all over the road, you have set the Lord right beside you. And instead of declaring other drivers number one with hand signals or letting your mood be determined by delays, you have good thoughts about the other drivers in their cars. That elderly lady driving in front of you with her blinker on for three miles is actually your grandmother. That young teenager with the music blaring at the stoplight is your nephew or brother. 
you finally get up beside that guy who refused to get over in the right lane on Interstate 4. And lo and behold, it's none other than Jesus himself. Eyes still closed. <laughs> then you arrive home and instead of feeling drained and tired, too tired to interact with your spouse or your kids, you realize that the Lord is at your right hand and he will strengthen you and give you joy so that you can spend time with them that is productive and joyful. Now you can look up now. Here's what happens. Over time in your mind, you begin to think, I guess... I really do want God more than I want anything else. Not because I'm supposed to try to do right things or believe right things to get into heaven, but just because I really do want God. And his word starts to move, listen now, from your mind to your heart. And then it starts to move to your will. And you find yourself saying, you know what? This is the kind of life I want. Whatever I have to do, I'm going to repeat this day again. And lo and behold, the inside of the tree starts to change. The second challenge besides that one of meditating on Scripture is get intentional about what you store up in your mind and what you do not store up in your mind. Get intentional about the law of exposure. Now, to me, the single biggest mental storage provider in America is media. Whether it's television or internet or print media. And let's be honest, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much of it is helpful in the mental storage business. We call this series good news, but let's be honest, most of the stuff we get from media is not good news. I realize it varies, I realize there is exceptions to that. But here's something to consider. Maybe just for one week, just one week, go without your primary form of media input. Some of you just started shaking, didn't you? Just cold turkey it. For that week, there's no Ellen, no Fox News, no CNN, no ESPN, no Lifetime Chick Flick Disease of the Week movie. No Good Morning America, no Tonight Show, no Jimmy Fallon, no Facebook, no Instagram, no Snapchat, no National Enquirer, no People, no Fitness Magazine. Whatever, you, whatever is your primary form, you just say, not this week. And you just say, God, I have a feeling I'm going to be bored out of my mind, so I need you to help me. <laughs> okay. Think about it. Wise people, spiritually speaking, historically they have conducted what they call a spiritual fast. You make that choice. And now we're in. This morning when you came in, you should have received just a card, just a blank card, a little small card. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand now. Somebody will come and bring you one. There's the folks over here, over here on this side. Just hold them up for just 10 seconds. Somebody will get to you. Up front, there's some folks here. If you would, take out a pen or a pencil a marker, something you have with you. Just hold your hand up if you need one. Last thing we're going to do today is we're going to kind of meditate on Scripture and we're going to respond. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, again, whatever things are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if 
anything is excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you about 60 or 90 seconds here. I want you to take a moment and I want you to write down one word, okay? One word, not a sentence, not a phrase, one word. Write down one word in this great big world of ours that you think is noble or true or right or pure or lovely or excellent or praiseworthy. It might be family. It might be uh, nature. It might be honesty. Whatever you meditate on here, whatever you feel like is true or noble, whatever is good in this world, I want you to dwell on that word for the next 60 seconds. Write it down on your card. And Lord, we bless you today. And we ask you that you would be our thought, our first thought. Whenever we face fear or an anxious moment, when we face tragedy, when we face uncertainty, when we face sadness, when we face a hopeless situation, God, may the first thought we be be in our mind that you are right there with us because we have set the Lord right beside us. He is at our right hand. Today, may we choose to expose ourselves to that which is going to feed and grow a good tree, which in turn will produce good fruit. I pray that in Jesus' name.